From CPR News, this is the Climate Change Variety Hour. It's an hour of hope and real-world solutions. A break from the doom and gloom. There's even music and comedy. I'm John Pino, and here's your host from Colorado Matters, Ryan Warner. Thanks, John. A rousing introduction. But you, you can't turn dread off like a light switch. I mean, these are serious issues. Species are at risk, including our own. Maybe we should start with a little therapy. But is that a thing, talking to a therapist about climate change? As it turns out, yeah, which is why I'm going to lay down on this couch for a little session with Benjamin White. Hi, Ben. Hi, Ryan. Uh, You're a licensed clinical social worker based in Colorado. Um, So first off, if someone is feeling dread about climate change, they're not alone? Certainly not. I think you may ask uh, the folks here tonight that you probably find a lot of good company in that. Applaud if you feel dread. How is it that you came to this type of work? Well, I was a, a naturalist in a former life. I lived in the Roaring Fork Valley, and I found myself giving tours to people talking about the history of impact on the environment. And I thought to myself, I need a much higher paying job. <laughs> And I need better language for the things that I was talking to people about. And so I went back to study psychology and clinical social work. When I used to talk about this, when I first started my studies, people would kind of look at me with this funny look on their face like, huh, climate psychology. And then in the last 10 years or so, because of stories on the radio, there's a lot more publicity in in news and books, people tend to be aware that it is a thing. So you actually have a practice where you meet and treat patients? I do traditional psychotherapy, and it just so happens that my practice uh, also specializes in working with people who are moved by the issue of climate change, whether that's for personal reasons or for professional reasons. A lot of people here in Colorado are involved in it in some professional capacity. Is there much being published on this? How legit is it? I'm legit. (laughs) Uh, prove it (laughs) more and more almost every day there is an article talking about the importance of paying attention to whether it's climate anxiety climate grief why don't we do a little therapy and as much as i need it uh, a member of our audience may engelstad of denver is going to join us come on out may hi ryan (laughs) Hi. Hi, Ben. Hi, May. May, we asked for people's climate confessions, things in modern life that they feel guilty about. And our producers were struck by what you wrote. I want to be transparent uh, that you're a friend of mine, but my team didn't we know... Are? That we are? <laughs> uh, my team didn't know this, and um, they insisted that we hear from you. So will you read what you wrote, your climate confession? I said, having children was a decision I felt guilty for making. Adding to the surplus population felt incredibly self-indulgent. Even though I am trying to raise a responsible, aware child, there are times that I feel I have not only added to the Earth's burden, but also signed my son up for a future of scary weather, scarce resources, and unhealthy living conditions. Do we have other parents in the audience who feel this way? So I didn't know this about you, how strongly you felt about this. I, I feel like 
there's just an added degree of responsibility that you feel, not only for yourself, but now for another human that you've brought onto this earth. So May's concerns are grounded in data. Um, this is interesting. China emits more carbon than the United States overall, but per capita, an American's carbon footprint is more than twice a Chinese person's, nine times an Indian person's. Um, we're talking about the resources that May's kiddo is going to gobble up. I'm not helping, am I? I'm not helping. Okay. <laughs> Feeling better already. Uh-huh. Mm -hmm. So, Ben, what do you say to her concerns? Well, you know, children have always been gobblers of resources. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> have you met my son? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure. I've met him specifically, but I'd like to. He sounds wonderful. With climate change, it's given particular, a particular context to, I think, what's kind of like an age-old struggle. Do you want to bring a kid into the world and have them inevitably suffer? Have them go through things that you know are going to be painful? And that's my understanding of what being a parent really is. But I think what I hear you saying, Ben, is that this has always been the case. In other words, there's almost never not been war. There's never not been strife. I think climate change and the prospect of what might happen because of climate change gives it a particular new life. But I am still convinced that we have as good a reason as we ever have to rely on the same things that have been helpful to us in the last however many thousands of years that we have been here. And what I know about parenthood is that a parent being attuned and sensitive to their child's potential struggles and being there and available for them as they go through those has been and will continue to be the most helpful and productive thing for a child in the world. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thank Thanks, you. Ben. <laughs> May Engelstad lives in Denver, and Benjamin White of Lafayette is a clinician and a member of the Climate Psychology Alliance. So I mentioned those climate confessions. People like May sent us their greenhouse gas guilty pleasures, their carbon peccadilloes. So here are just some of your... Climate Confessions. Hi, this is Cindy O'Donnell from Lakewood, and my climate confession is that while I drive a Prius, both of my kids drive old gas-guzzling SUVs. And I also can't seem to remember to put those reusable grocery bags in the car. My name is Amber, and I'm from Denver. I really enjoy long, hot showers, which in reality are wasteful and slightly unnecessary. So I try to combat that by taking fewer showers in the hope that it evens out to an average of a person taking shorter showers more frequently. Hi, my name is Cash from Denver, and my climate confession is flying in airplanes. Airplanes account for 2-3% of global CO2 emissions, and a simple trip to the East Coast and back is the CO2 emissions equivalent of driving my car almost 4,500 miles. But I do it anyway, because it's convenient. Hi, my name is Taylor, and I'm from Denver. My climate confession is driving up to the mountains to be immersed in nature, the very thing we need to protect from climate change. I often wrestle with the decision to guzzle gas to get to my favorite Rocky Mountain spots. My name is Carrie, and I'm from Denver, and my climate confession is Amazon. I'm a Prime member, which makes it easy to instantaneously buy stuff that isn't local. I have a total love-hate relationship with it. The Climate Change Variety Hour from Colorado Matters continues after a break with author Hunter Lovins, who says fighting climate change doesn't have to eat into corporate profits. 
her vision for a finer future, when we return on CPR News. Welcome back to the Climate Change Variety Hour from Colorado Matters and CPR News, an hour of hope and real-world solutions with your host, Ryan Warner. Thanks, John Pinno. Okay, here's the bad news. When it comes to climate change, there is no silver bullet. The good news? There's plenty of silver buckshot. That's how Hunter Levins puts it. She's founder of Natural Capitalism Solutions in Longmont, which has advised governments, the military, and major corporations like Walmart and Unilever. Her M.O. is that sustainability, reversing climate change, can go hand-in-hand with prosperity. Levin's latest book is called A Finer Future, Creating an Economy in Service to Life. Hi, Hunter. Hi, Ryan. Lest someone think today's show is Pollyanna to be focused on hope and solutions, not doom and gloom, uh, you write about the importance of constructing a new story, a new narrative. You quote Pete Seeger. The key to the future of the world is finding the optimistic stories and letting them be known. Why don't we start with an optimistic story? What trend do you see in the circles you move in that gives you hope? The one that really tickled me in the last week, I was just in China. The world's going to be saved or not in China. They are constructing a freeway for autonomous electric vehicles, a whole lane in a freeway just for AEVs, because they see the future as moving away from gasoline, diesel-burning cars, and going to electric vehicles powered by sun, by wind. China has written into its constitution that it will be the ecological civilization. They don't yet know how to do it, but they're very serious about figuring it out. I'm fascinated by this assertion you made that the world will be saved. Its salvation depends on China. Why do you say that? Because of the scale. China has the choice to follow in our footprints, to rapaciously consume the stuff of the world, or to turn from that by building a finer future based on human well-being, by ensuring that we all have enough, by finding happiness without this incessant flood of stuff, and thus building a a durable civilization. They see themselves as this ancient and wise civilization. They see us as upstarts. And so it's up to us to prove that we have some wisdom, and it's up to both of us to build this finer future. And yet I think of the stories about China's terrible air quality and you know the images that we have seen of urban China and I think, well, my, that doesn't sync up with the vision that you've laid out. Or That's partly out. where that vision comes from. They can't breathe. And so the party realizes it is at risk of losing legitimacy unless it delivers clean air. The cheapest way to deliver clean air is energy efficiency and renewable energy. And so they're doing it. I'm glad you mentioned consumption. You write in this book, the economy of consumption has not delivered on the quality of life promised. And you think that this is based on several myths, that we can have infinite growth on a finite planet, and that prices, what we pay for the pants I'm wearing or the car I'm driving, that prices tell the truth. Just say a little bit more about the myths you believe 
the economy of consumption is based on. Well, the great Colorado economist Ken Boulding said anyone who believes you can have infinite growth on a finite planet is either a madman or an economist. (laughs) We can have essentially infinite happiness, music, well-being, education. There are many things that we can continue to grow. We can grow our prosperity. What we can't grow is the throughput of stuff, the digging up, the using it once, and the throwing it away. That the earth cannot sustain. At the same time, a circular economy allows us to have all the stuff we want. We just don't waste it. We reuse it. We recycle it. We extract the value from it and put it into new materials. It's a question of design. I'd love to have you read an excerpt from the book. Uh, These are actually someone else's words which you quote, but they haunted me after uh, reading your book from the late Danella Meadows. She was an environmental scientist, a MacArthur genius, and I do have to say these words made me rethink my desire for stuff. Dana was one of the most beautiful people I had the privilege of knowing. And she said, people don't need enormous cars. They need respect. They don't need closets full of clothes. They need to feel attractive. And they need excitement, variety, beauty. People need identity, community, challenge, acknowledgement, love, joy. To try and fill these needs with material things is to set up an unquenchable appetite for false solutions to real and unsatisfied problems. The resulting psychological emptiness is one of the major forces behind the desire for material growth. A society that can admit and articulate its non-material needs and find non-material ways to satisfy them would require much lower material and energy throughput and would provide much higher levels of human fulfillment. Hunter Levins, I'm fascinated by your client list, uh, names we might expect, Patagonia, Cliff Bar, but also Royal Dutch Shell. Uh, and that got me poking around. Shell isn't just gas stations. They own Pennzoil and Jiffy Lube. And Shell says on its website, we all need to work together to achieve the ambitions set in the Paris Agreement. When you say silver buckshot to fight climate change, how much of that is corporations? Well, it's all of us, and that's why it's buckshot. It's all the little bits that all of us do. Shell recently bought a utility. What's an oil company doing with an electric utility? They realize that the future is going to be electric. They recently bought the biggest company in Europe that runs electric vehicle charging stations. Essentially everywhere in the world, renewables are cheaper than coal, oil, gas. Here in Colorado, Excel, our previously coal-loving utility, put out an all-source bid. Who can get us 1,100 megawatts, any price, any source, y'all bid? The lowest fossil bid, gas, was 4 cents a kilowatt hour. Wind was a little below 2 cents. Solar was a little above 2 cents. Wind, solar, storage, 3 cents a kilowatt hour. That's firm baseload power from renewables. Excel said, no, bid it again. So they did. Essentially the same answer. Excel said, "Um, can we shut down two coal plants and pledge to go two-thirds renewables? They've now pledged to go 100% renewables. (laughs) 
An ongoing Yale survey finds 60% of Americans are either alarmed or concerned about global warming. Uh, and the number of those who are doubtful or dismissive has been shrinking. But, you know, one concern I hear, particularly among conservatives and libertarians, is that they perceive many climate change solutions as a sort of Trojan horse to usher in big government, massive spending, choking regulation. And I want you to address their concerns. People say to me, I don't believe in climate change. I say, okay, fine, assume it's a hoax. Don't go to Vegas on the odds of that being true, but if all you are is a profit-maximizing capitalist, you would do exactly what you'd do if you were scared to death of climate change, because we know how to solve this one at a profit. If it's a hoax, we'll make a lot of money. If it's real, we'll make a lot of money. Oh, and we're on our way to solving the problem. Either way, let's go. This is simply better business. This is why every company that has announced a goal to cap its carbon emissions winds up saving money. Why? Because you're no longer paying to buy and burn the fuel that's emitting the carbon. You can do this, too. You can offset. If you want to fly, go ahead, fly. But offset your carbon. This you is can... what, by the way, this is what people feel the most guilty about. When we have yeah. the climate confessions, nearly universal agreement that people feel terrible about flying. They do it anyway. Well, companies like United have already gone to half biofuel. They're going to the higher bypass engines, which are much more fuel efficient. If you follow Tony Seba, put solar on your house. I have solar on my ranch. In the 2013 floods, the neighbors were out of power for a week. We weren't. Called them up, said, hey, you want to come charge your cell phones? Bring food over for the refrigerator? My husband, who, you know, I bought it back when it was expensive. He said, this is never going to pay for itself. After that, he said, I like our solar panels. <laughs> this is national security. It's also jobs, 10 times the number of jobs from solar, from efficiency, as building a central station power plant. And again, it's just better business. The companies that are getting into this are saving money, which is why you're going to see big corporate after big corporate announcing climate protection goals, it's like hotels. Oh, hang your towel. Don't just lay it on the floor. We'll replace it if you want it. But uh, be a good environmental steward. Bullshit. They're saving money. They don't have to pay to wash your towel. In your chapter, Triumph of the Sun, you write about the companies that have signed on to something called the RE100. This is a commitment to go 100% renewable. At last check, some 169 corporations, IKEA, Anheuser-Busch, InBev. Some have already achieved the goal, Capital One, Lego. But I, I want to talk about another aspect of the money here, because fundamentally, you and other climate activists want fossil fuels to go unburned. Leave them in the ground. And you point out in your book that those reserves are worth some $22 trillion. Yeah, here's where it gets scary, Hold on. Folks. Hold on. I want to talk about that $22 trillion left in the ground because there are families counting on sending their children to college with that value, governments that count on severance taxes. Granted, climate change comes with its own enormous costs, but how do you account for the real and lost value in an energy transition? Without a doubt, we need to have a just transition. However... This transition is coming, whether they like government or they don't. This is, again, basic economics. When it is cheaper not to burn the stuff, 
it won't get burned. It is actually, according to Carbon Tracker, as of last November, 25 trillion in about-to-be-stranded fossil assets. By contrast, the 08 financial collapse was over 2.7 trillion in stranded mortgage assets. We are looking at the mother of all economic dislocations coming at us probably within about 10 years' time. This really is a very serious problem. Notice I'm not talking about polar bears. This is banks. This is insurance companies. Pension funds. This is oil, gas, coal, uranium, nuclear, the utility industry, and all of the financial industry that is now at risk. And you don't have to take my word for it. Take the word of Mark Carney, head of the Bank of England, or Bloomberg, Hank Paulson, Tom Steyer, grillionaires, all of them, in a report called Risky Business, where they said business is at risk from climate change. Hunter Levins, thank you for being with us. Ryan, thank you so much for having me. Hunter Levins is the founder of Natural Capitalism Solutions in Longmont. Her new book with several co-authors is A Finer Future, Creating an Economy in Service to Life. And now let's get more of your Climate Confessions. Hey, my name is Stephen Ingersoll, and I'm from Littleton, Colorado. When I'm using air conditioning during the summer, it's painful to know that when I'm getting cooler, I contribute to the world getting hotter. And that's not very cool if you ask me. This is Jennifer Mays from Denver, and I'm conflicted daily. I know it would be better for the environment to bike to work, and it's only about a half hour each way, but it's just much more convenient to drive and not have to deal with changing clothes and sweat and having to run errands. Also, yogurt cups. My name is Brian Fleming. I'm from Denver, and my climate confession is that we have a ridiculously oversized hot tub that uses a lot of electricity. We also have solar panels in our home, and that conveniently balances out the difference in power consumption. I sometimes joke that the solar panels are just there to power the hot tub. From the Robert and Judy Newman Center for the Performing Arts at the University of Denver, it's the Climate Change Variety Hour from CPR News and Colorado Matters. I'm John Pino, and here again is your host, Ryan Warner. The Denver hip-hop group Flowbots has been writing a soundtrack. Not for a movie or a TV show, but a soundtrack for social change. They look at the power of song in the civil rights movement and have taken up the mantle to create protest songs for a new generation. A generation, many of whom are concerned about climate change. Here's Flowbots with Stand Up. None of us can do everything by ourselves. But together, together, we can do anything. Together, we can do anything. We come from a tradition of call and response, and sometimes we must respond with our bodies. Sometimes we must respond with movement. Sometimes the only way to respond is to stand up. Stand up, we shall not be moved Except by a child with no socks and shoes If you've got more to give than you've got to prove Put your hands up and I'll copy you 
We shall not be moved except by a woman dying from a loss of food. If you got more to give, then you got to prove. Put your hands up and I'll copy you We still don't understand thunder and lightning Flashback to when we didn't fund the dam Didn't fund the damn levy, no wonder man Now a whole damn city's torn asunder man Underwater but we still don't understand We see hurricanes spills overrun the land Through gaps you couldn't fill with a hundred tons of sand No we still don't understand We see planes in the windows and buildings crumbled in We seen flames sending chills through London And we've sent planes to kill them But some of them are children but still be crumbled in the building, under fundamental, we still don't understand. Under God, will we kill like the son of Sam? But if you feel like I feel about the son of man, we will overcome. So stand up. stand up, we shall not be moved except by a child with no socks and shoes. If you got more to give, then you got to prove. Put your hands up and I'll copy you. Stand up, stand up, we shall not be moved except by a woman dying from a loss of food. If you got more to give, then you got to prove. Put your hands up and I'll copy you I said put your hands up and I'll copy you Put your hands up and I'll copy you If you got more to give then you got to prove Put your hands up and I'll copy you We shall not be moved Except by a child with no socks or shoes Except by a woman dying from a loss of food Except by a freedom fighter bleeding on a cross for you We shall not be moved Except by a system that's rotten through Neglecting the victims and ordering the cops to shoot High treason, now we need a prosecute So stand up, stand up. we shall not be moved And we won't fight a war for fossil fuel If times like this make you wanna plot a coup Put your hands up and I'll copy you Stand up, stand up. we shall not be moved Unless we're taking a rap we have not pursued So if you've got a dream and a lot to do Put your hands up and I'll copy you I said put your hands up and I'll copy you Put your hands up and I'll copy you If you've got a dream and a lot to do Put your hands up Now shake, shake, I pull the whole dream Nightmare negatives develop on the screen We sit back and wait for the government team Criticize they, but what are we? The people want peace, but the leaders want war Neighbors don't speak, peek through the front door House representatives preach, stay the course But it's time for a leap of faith Once more, put your hands up high if you haven't abandoned Hope that the pen strokes stronger than the cannon Fall to the wall, nose to the grindstone By interrogation techniques, leave your mind blown Place your best, let's speak to the enemy Don't let him pretend that we seek blood Or who's we anyway, Kimo Sabe Mighty warlord, wannabe street thug a threat for a threat leaves the whole world terrified Blow for blow never settles the score Word for word it's time we clarify We the people did not want war There's no time left for destruction It's time to build So stand up, stand up. We shall not be moved Except by a child with no socks and shoes If you got more to give then you got to prove Come on, put your hands up and I'll copy you Stand up, stand up. we shall not be moved Except by a woman dying from a loss of food So if you got a dream and a lot to do Put your hands up and I'll copy you I said put your hands up and I'll copy you Put your hands up and I'll copy you If you've got a dream and a lot to do Put your hands up Flowbots, the Denver hip-hop band, and why don't we chat with its MCs Johnny Five and Br'er Rabbit. Off stage, that's Jamie Laurie and Stefan Brackett. Hi, gentlemen. Hey, how's hey. it going? How's it going? Doing well. Before we get highfalutin about the power of music to spur on social movements, I want your climate confessions. Um, I mean, so I'm addicted to languages, and as part of that, I sometimes travel 
a long distance to be able to immerse myself in a language. So I recently went to Zanzibar to study Swahili, and that's a long way. That's a lot of jet fuel. So, you know, just like everybody else, I'm thinking about transportation. Ooh, um, I am an activist. I've been an activist for a long time. And I remember particularly when um, Black Lives Matter was really becoming something in the public consciousness, I was deeply involved. And I remember during that point in time, as an activist, I remember talking to some other organizers and saying, yeah, I don't think I can really bring myself to care that much about the climate. And I thought I was saying something important. That Black Lives Matter was so important yes. to you that you couldn't make space Yes, for I it. couldn't make space. I, I was thinking, like, I'm focused on justice. With the wisdom and with what science has revealed is that if I am concerned about justice, then I must be concerned about the climate. You both had a mentor in the late Vincent Harding, yes. who was a confidant of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., and he wrote speeches for Dr. King. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you tell us how he sort of supercharged your social activism. And he, he lived in Denver, let me say. He lived in Denver. He taught at the Island School of Theology. And his one critique would always be, where are the songs? So growing up and being a part of the civil rights movement, he saw the songs as a piece of technology that modern activists were underutilizing or not using at all. And we realized that that question after his passing kind of became a charge for us to reconnect with that technology. You've been asking a question of society lately, especially as it relates to social movements, which is, Jamie, why did we stop singing? Uh, Tell me what you mean by that. We know that social movements in the past have part of their glue, part of what has allowed them to be supercharged and and present, um, is to have songs in common, to celebrate singing not as something that performers do on stage, but something that everybody can do together, that we have as a culture, as a movement. And so I think there's many reasons why people might feel disempowered around that these days, whether it's that we expect music to take the form of an MP3, we expect to pay somebody to sing on stage for us, um, or we think we don't have anything in common. Um, but or we, we're just embarrassed to sing. Mm-hmm. Some of the people that we've talked to that are most scared to sing went to music school. <laughs> there's also entire television programs who are designed to shame even the best singers in front of an entire televised audience. So... You could even say it's in our interest, our financial interest, to keep other people from singing because <laughs> <Yeah>. then <laughs> we don't need the competition. But also, when people say that they're afraid to use their voices, I think we're also saying that we're trained to be quiet. Mm-hmm. So if we can learn to raise our voices together, we're also learning to shout beautifully. And we can express our anger in ways that it can be received. That's the emotional connecting technology that is song. It's funny you use the word technology because it's so low-tech in a way. Yes. It's the the most (laughs) low-tech. The Green New Deal has gotten a lot of attention lately. Uh, Its goal is to get the U.S. to 100% clean and renewable energy and to spur job growth. Uh, I'll say just one member of Colorado's congressional delegation has endorsed it. Uh, That's Representative Joe Neguse. But the proposal didn't originate in Congress. It started with young activists who were part of something called the Sunrise Movement, uh, which is actually quite a musical movement. Storm surge and fires burn, but you don't hear the call. Because fossil fuels can pain you, does not weigh on you at all. Does it weigh on you at all? Does it weigh? I wonder if Flowbots preach to the choir 
or do you change minds? Every audience has so many different opinions in that audience that I think what we try to do is leave people with a feeling of what it can feel like when we are on one page and when we're on um, singing the same note together. I think that Literally and, and figuratively. Absolutely. Yeah, and I think um, when you look at a, a group like the Sunrise Movement, they started small. They started small, but they um, made sure that their movements were inviting in the same way that when we play a concert, we don't want you know, 20 people at the back to hate us. We want everybody to be on board. If you're building a movement, you want the same thing, ideally. And Sunrise Movement built themselves in a way that invited people in, constantly invited people in. Um, and it's been beautiful to watch this tiny group help to put something on the national agenda that is creating conversation everywhere. And they were introduced to their singing culture by the module that we actually created after Dr. Harding said, where are the songs? We started training movements specifically in how to find those songs again. And Sunrise is one of those mini groups that actually were able to take that module, Why Did We Stop Singing? Flowbots, thank you. Absolutely. Thank, thank you. you. <laughs> the late comedian Joan Rivers said, what makes you laugh is the absurd, the horror, anything that upsets me. Climate change certainly qualifies. It's partly why Beth Osnes produces an annual event at CU Boulder focusing on just that, the role humor can play. And Beth Osnes, everyone. Thank you. Hello, my name is Climate Change, and I'm really excited. I just signed up for this new dating service. It's called Cupid Cares. Yeah, they're supposed to be pretty good. Who do you think introduced Angelina Jolie in human rights? Bill Gates and malaria? Cupid cares. So I thought maybe they could find a match for me too. Okay, wait. I see some confused faces in the crowd. Oh my God. Do you guys think I'm still hooked up with Al Gore? Okay. Allow me to say with all respect to Mr. Gore that we ended our monogamous relationship for a more open one a while ago. Maybe you've heard rumors of me with uh, Leonardo DiCaprio, Don Cheadle. Maybe they're true. Okay, so then why did I sign up? Truth is, I want to meet somebody younger. (laughs) That's why I'm here on a college campus tonight looking for a match. Okay, ah, ah, I saw that. You are having old issue gross out reaction. What is climate change doing prowling around on a college campus? That issue's been around for like, what, 40 years? Ew. Ah, but there's a glint in this person's eye. (laughs) Kind of a cougar chaser, huh? You like an older issue? But even you might be thinking I'd be kind of a hard date to take to parties. Admit it, kind of a Debbie Downer. I try and talk about things besides doom and gloom, But the next thing you know, there I am, chatting somebody up about food scarcity or loss of shorelines. I've been trying to be more positive, you know. But it's not easy to seem fun when you know that everybody thinks that you're the one who's responsible for making the human species go extinct. But I'm working on it, damn it! (laughs) Okay, maybe I've got anger management issues. Those reports of violent outbreaks, storms, floods, hurricanes, they're true. I'm working on it. (laughs) Listen, I'm not perfect, but do you want to know why you should choose me as your issue? I've got staying power. (laughs) I'm faithful. 
I'm not going to fade away into yesterday's thing. I'm not like that hole in the ozone or One Direction or Facebook. No, I promise to be the defining issue of our times and for generations to come. I might be the best chance you've got at a meaningful relationship with a single issue. Beth Osnes, everyone. Beth, uh, come have a seat. You are fascinating. You're a professor at CU Boulder in the theater department and in environmental science. Is that the kind of pairing that we should be thinking more about? I think it is, because I think we need to recognize that we've gotten a lot of the information, and now we're interested in the story of it. And we need to find ways around the already established defenses to really engage with and come together and greet and meet and act together. When we were putting together this event, the Climate Change Variety Hour, there were concerns in meetings. People are going to think this is flip. I'm guessing you face that judgment, and I wonder what your reaction to it is. I think that my reaction to that would be that we are not making light of the climate situation, but we're rather bringing light And I think we also have to remember that comedy has always dealt with really tough things like the Peloponnesian War or, you know, like like it's not a stranger to tough, big issues. And it has the opportunity to offer preposterous solutions that might just actually end up working in the long run. Later this month, you're presenting your annual event, Stand Up for Climate Change. Part of the program helps students produce their own routines and we really ought to take a moment to focus on youth, since apparently climate change is a cougar, according to your, <laughs> your stand-up. That's right. That's uh, right. But, you know, youth were born into climate change, and they grow up with it all around them. We saw those student walkouts recently. Uh, what stands out from your interactions with them? I think that we see in our students that, especially our environmental studies students, that their hearts are nearly on the ground. They know way too much. But just giving people access to expression can lift their hearts up again. And when we have students using this kind of positive humor, we find, and there are studies to back it up, that it helps them regulate their emotions and work through towards hope and being able to sustain hope. Will these students go on to become comedians or environmental scientists or... A weirdo who does both? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know what they're going to end up doing, but wherever they go, I hope they can bring this capacity to bring light into these dark places and to be able to bring in this idea of possibilities and ridiculous ideas that might just save us. You've said that twice, ridiculous ideas that might just save us. What do you mean? Okay, what I mean is most comedy is based on a really stupid, ridiculous idea Uh that has an element of truth to it, and then you just fully commit to it. Beth, thanks for being with us. Thank you very much. Beth Osnes, who organizes the annual Stand Up for Climate Change at CU Boulder. And it's that time again for your... Climate... Confessions. My name is Marcy Davis, and I'm from Westminster, Colorado. My gas-guzzling climate confession is to always be the first off the line when driving my sweet BMW. Hi, my name is Alex. I live in Colorado Springs, 
And my climate confession is that I wear daily disposable contacts, even though I know how much waste they create between the product and the packaging. But they're so convenient, and they really work better for my eyes, so I keep wearing them anyway. My name is Megan Sherritt, and I'm living in Lakewood, Colorado. My climate change confession begins with my inability to stay properly hydrated. That is, until I discovered a love for sparkling water. This newfound hydration also came with new plastic and glass bottle waste that I began justifying because this was a healthy habit. It was good for me. I needed this. Luckily, my partner got me a soda stream so I can start taking steps to reduce my self-guilt and my waste. My name is Lottie Dula, and I live in Denver, Colorado. My climate confession is that I traded in my Prius for a Volvo with a less than stellar miles per gallon rating. Also, I live in a beautiful 1893 Victorian that is plagued with energy inefficiency issues. Hey, this is embarrassing, and it's just the tip of the iceberg. Could you guys maybe set up a confession booth? From Colorado Matters and CPR News, it's the Climate Change Variety Hour. Hope and real-world solutions with your host, Ryan Warner. Coral reefs have been described as underwater rainforests, and the world has lost more than 40% of them. They could disappear entirely if the world doesn't get greenhouse gas emissions under control. Marine ecologist Joni Klepa studies coral death. She's based in Boulder at the National Center for Atmospheric Research, but she also focuses on life. Think of her as an underwater gardener bringing coral back from the brink. Hi, Joni. Hi, Ryan. I'd like you to describe one of your favorite coral reefs. And, um, you know, if folks aren't driving, maybe we could close our eyes and imagine this. Just close your eyes, like Ryan says. Just do what he tells you. And... Imagine that you're underwater and you're floating down, you know, four or five meters down to the reef. And there's all these beautiful fish in the way, all these colors, bioluminescence. You just swat that away and open your eyes and look at the bottom where the reef is growing. And you'll see this huge rock structure underneath that was built by the corals. And it's covered with all these live corals. And corals are interesting because they're really kind of slimy. They're really like uh, anemones, right? Just hundreds of little anemones per coral, all living colonially together. And look like little flowers with a little stalk and tentacles around it and then a little mouth right in the middle. So they are animals and they feed. And in fact, the early explorers like Darwin and Wallace described these as walls of millions of mouths. So that's what the coral reef looks like. And I hope you're not still holding your breath and you can let go now. Uh, You can open your eyes now if you'd like. (laughs) Why is coral so sensitive to climate change? You know, how does the coral bleaching happen that we hear so much about? Well, corals are are, uh, also special because, I mean, I wish we could do this to ourselves. They have developed over time this amazing ability uh, relationship with a symbiotic microscopic algae that lives in their tissues. So they're kind of like a plant and an animal at the same time. Imagine if we could grow algae in our skin and just sunbathe, then we could get all the nutrients from photosynthesis and we wouldn't have to eat so much. So this is really a cool thing that they've developed and they can grow really quickly. But that relationship, when temperature gets too warm for them, that relationship is broken and the algae is producing 
free radicals, which make the coral feel sick, kind of like the way we, when we feel sick, we may have diarrhea or throw up. They just get rid of all of those algae, and since the algae gave them their color, it's called coral bleaching because it looks like they're bleached, but really they've lost all their color. They've lost all their color because the warming temperatures of the water has affected this plant-animal symbiosis. Precisely. Oh, that's fascinating. You do restoration work in Costa Rica. I love this. At a coral nursery. Yes. A coral nursery. How does it work trying to grow and restore coral? It's really beautiful, I have to say. It's my favorite thing to do, being a, a climate scientist and being working on coral reefs for so long and just predicting the doom and gloom, getting in the water and actually helping these corals grow. I mean, the corals want to grow. What we do is we take small little pieces. We we go up to a, a healthy coral. We take small fragments off that coral, not very much. We can break it into tiny little pieces. You mean bits of the coral itself, the animal? The animal. Coral animals can reproduce two ways. They can produce eggs and sperm and form a new coral, but they also can form just by taking fragments of the coral. You just break it off. We often go down and anchors have broken off pieces. We'll rescue those pieces of coral. We cut them into tiny little bits, or we suspend them from like monofilament under these structures underwater, and we can take a small piece of coral that's about 10 centimeters by 10 centimeters and make 100 corals out of it by putting them in an underwater nursery, and then they grow into a full colony, Then we take those after about six months to a year, and we put them back out on the reef and plant them. It's just like reforestation. Wow. And and a round of applause for you, Joni. I think so often of the Great Barrier Reef when I hear about the damage to coral. Is this something that could repopulate a place that fragile, that important, and that big? This is a, a tough one because... The Great Barrier Reef is huge. It extends the distance of the entire eastern seaboard of the United States. And they've lost, in 2016 and 2017, they lost about half of their corals through to coral bleaching. If anyone has seen the movie Chasing Coral, it's described very beautifully and very devastatingly. That is a lot of coral. Mm. And now they're finding that the corals that did survive, when they do reproduce, that the successful reproduction and recruitment of those new corals is very low. So they're trying to find ways to enhance the recovery of the coral reef. We call it assisted evolution. You take the stronger corals, you can grow a lot of the corals in these nurseries and plant them on the reef, but you can't plant the entire reef. You have to be very strategic plant patches here and there so that they can exchange eggs and sperm and and then start reproducing in the future. But with climate change, we have to grow them stronger. We have to grow them resilient to climate change. Right. In other words, you don't want to just repeat the process in which they die again. Exactly. You know, we can take uh, reproductive measures just the same way we do with crops, and you can find really much more resilient offspring when you cross many different individuals of these corals What we're doing in our nursery, I mean, nursery-grown corals just do better in the wild, just the way nursery-grown plants can do better. They just get a good head start. Joni, thank you. Thank you so much. Joni Klepis is a marine ecologist at the National Center for Atmospheric Research in Boulder. She also leads Raising Coral, a nonprofit that's trying to plant as many as 1,000 corals in Costa Rica this year. 
This has been the Climate Change Variety Hour with Ryan Warner from Colorado Matters, produced by Anthony Cotton, engineered by Matt Hers, David Fender, and Shane Rumsey, stage direction by Ann Drake. A special thanks to the crew at the Newman Center at DU, with help from Grace Hood and Paul Caroli. Our executive producer is Carl Bielik. I'm John Pino, and this is CPR News.